Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Very excited. This is our 199th episode. Can you believe it? We've got a special episode today for you that we've been working all week on. It's the best of Industry Standard casting directors. And I know you're going to love it a lot. There's so many amazing people that we've had throughout the years. And we've taken the best of their podcast and brought it for you today. Everybody from Julie Ashton to Mark Hirschfeld to Gene Blythe to Donna Rosenstein. And, of course, a man who's not a casting director but is part of the fabric of that business as one of the greatest acting coaches of all time, Larry Moss. So you're going to have a great time today. You're going to really enjoy what they have to offer which is probably collectively over 125 years of experience in casting and acting. And I can't think of a better way to bring it to you since we just finished pilot season and the upfronts are upon us in New York City for the networks. And this is a chance to reflect on what it takes to be a great actor if you're out there and you are an actor somebody might want to be an actor and also it applies to people in every single business out there because these people have philosophies about how to take people to the next level and how to get to the next level that work in every single line of work there is in the world and I know you're gonna see the value of that the power and the wisdom and the intelligence and the experience that these people have if ever I could just be around that every day of my life that's what I'd want 
And that's what I wish for you when you listen to this podcast, because I assure you that if you follow what these people say about how to go through life and how to go through work, I can guarantee you you'll have the possibility of having the kind of careers that they've had. Here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Undeniable. You're fucking firing me up, Katz. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard. Very excited today because we put something really special together for you. The best of Industry Standard casting directors. We have four of the greatest casting directors in history, along with probably the greatest acting guru and acting coach of my generation and I can't think of any better way to kick this episode off than with a good friend of mine. She started with Steven Spielberg early on in the career, and she's worked in every genre of the business. She's done big-budget studio movies like The Internship, hybrid scripted TV shows like Reno 911, talk variety shows like Chocolate News and the Emmy Award-winning Wayne Brady Show, kids television like Zack and Cody, sketch comedy with Mad TV and Blue Collar TV, and half-hour scripted comedy with Two Broke Girls, Lucky Louie, and the Emmy Award-winning Arrested Development. You are going to get a lot out of this one. Julie Ashton. Take me back a month from when you knew that you wanted to do something like this and what were you doing as a job and then what happened that made you say, you know, I want to get into the show business thing on the casting director side. Well, I went to school for dance. I thought I was going to be a professional dancer. I went to Arizona State University wow. and it was like a 7 a.m. class. So needless to say, I never made it once <laughs> to the ballet. That must and, be why you dropped out after a year. I think I was thrown out, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think there was much decision on my part. And I and I decided just to move to L.A. And I just I always wanted to live in L.A. And I wasn't really sure what part of the business that I wanted to be in. But the one thing that I always remember is even as a kid, I always paid really close attention to the credits for some reason and to the actors. So I knew a lot of actors you know, when I was growing up in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and I knew all their credits and I knew their resumes and I knew I'd look at billing. I mean, what a weird thing that is for a kid to look at billing and see who got above the title or below the title or Laverne and Shirley at the time or whatever. Just for the sake of argument, explain above the title, below the title and Laverne and Shirley to our audience. Okay, okay, okay. So when you, for example, uh, I did the internship and Vince Vaughn and Owen Wilson 
huge movie stars like that will get their names above the title. So instead of it saying the internship starring Vince Vaughn and Owen Wilson, it will say Vince Vaughn, Owen Wilson, and then the internship. And then uh, Laverne and Shirley, which I think at one point they called it like, what do they call it? And then it became Will and Grace billing. You remember that because of Eric McCormick and Deborah Messing. But that essentially means that you guys share a card and one is up on the right and one is down on the bottom and then they flip it and yeah, that whole thing. What's fascinating about the Laverne and Shirley card, if I'm not mistaken is that somebody still has to be first that's true but they that's why i think they flip it i've heard that they say you know eric mccormack's name was on the top on the left then the next week deborah messings would be on the top on the left but regardless they did share the same card and that's how laverne and shirley works um so anyways i I digress but I, i did pay a lot of attention to that sort of thing and i'm not really sure why so I came to L.A. and I started working right away on a movie that was called – actually, I think my very first movie was – I think it was The Karate Kid. This yeah. is a fascinating thing for me because here's your first movie you're ever working on, The Karate Kid 2. And this is this is what's so crazy about our business. So crazy about our business. So – you have the Karate Kid, which is a huge movie, big thing. They decide Karate Kitty t- Kid 2, we're going to do it with a, a girl. And they pick a girl <laughs> who, well, out of a bunch of auditions, mm. uh, probably hundreds of girls auditioned. Young girl gets the gig named Hillary Swank. Correct. So take me back. You're working there. You're in these rooms. Tell me... How many girls auditioned for that part? Well, Caro, first of all, I think I came in in the middle of that. Caro took me under her wing. She was an old, a friend. Mm-hmm. And she knew that I'd moved to Los Angeles. And she, I, mean, I knew she was a casting director, but I really didn't know what that was. And she and her son, Jack Jones, not the singer Jack Jones, but the casting director, brought me in and gave me a job. And my job was as a reader to read with the actors as they were doing the auditions. Now, this is another thing that you should know. Um, you are um, a much better reader than most <laughs> casting directors. <laughs> You're for, too sweet. For those of you who don't uh, aren't in the acting profession, um, basically what happens is on an audition is you wait in a waiting room, you sign in. <laughs> There's other people in the acting room looking like in various stages of homelessness, <laughs> And some kind of mental illness because they're talking to themselves gibberish. They have a paper in their hand. They're going, they're looking up. They're like, literally, they're bird watching, talking. And my wife left me in 1962. My life left me. So you're trying to get the lines down, whatever it is. And, and, and you're just sitting there and then you're waiting. You don't know when you're going to go in. And sometimes if it's a comedy, the worst thing that can happen is there's a person that goes in, they go out. Person goes in, goes out. Person goes in, goes out. Then another person goes in. They're in there for a half hour. People right. are laughing. You can hear a standing ovation right. and the wave mounting <laughs> in the office back and forth. And you realize you're next. Uh-huh. And the person reading with you, normally there's an intern with a camera. And normally there's some, you know, <laughs> functionally disabled person reading lines <laughs> with you that really literally cannot even <laughs> read they, they can't, can't even read. read they don't know what it is and you have to read with them like they're the most seasoned actor in the world but they're giving you nothing and for the casting director who is the reader it's a frustrating thing because you know i was there during many things that you've done and you read and early on in your career you were a reader and sometimes you're in tests you're reading yourself 
So you assume that role later on because you want the actors and actresses to feel great. But I digress. Getting back to Hilary Swank, tell me the process of finding her, if you remember that, and who the people were that might have been in the running at the time and uh, who didn't make the cut. Honestly, I don't I don't remember it. I mean, I don't know if my brain is super fried or what, but I, I don't really remember. And again, I was just the reader. I would come in just for the casting sessions. Caro didn't like to read with the actors because she didn't feel like she could focus on their performance when she was, you know, looking down at her page. So I got $50 a week and I read, you know, every single day with a million different. I'm sure if I looked back, well, at the time we didn't even have computers, Barry. So I couldn't even look on, you know, any kind of a... Uh, I can't, I can't access lists or anything, but I'm sure everybody who in the whole world, you know, was in LA at the time came in. This is something that to me is very important if you're a young actor or an actress. And a lot of times you, you think to yourself, okay, well, you know, should I do this movie or should I do that? I know I haven't done that much yet, but should I do this or whatever? Or sometimes a movie has a lot of hype and you think to them yourself, it's going to do well and whatever. <laughs> So the next Karate Kid, Hillary Swank does it, literally not good. <laughs> what I'm saying is I love the Karate Kid movies. What I'm saying is when I say not good, what I mean not good is that you're following something that's like a multi-mega hit right. success right. with a movie that does a fraction of the business of that right. movie. Right. So when I say not good, I mean not good there. So then you have somebody who goes in, you're breaking a star, and when a star is trying to be broken and then, you know, it doesn't happen, you think to yourself, oh, my God, you know, this disappointment, this is bad, this is people all look... I'm the next Karate Kid, and I didn't do that well. <laughs> right. And it sets you back. But what's fascinating with Hillary, and, you know, I had a chance to work with her in a, some capacity in Camp Wilder, where she did a show with Jay Moore and uh, Mary Page Keller, Tina Majorino, and Jerry O'Connell. And she was doing that as well. And so you have these roles that people do, and you think to yourself, if you do this, you're never going to recover. If you do this situation, this isn't going to happen. Or if you do Soul Plane, your career is going to go down the tubes. Well, you know, I think Kevin Hart is an example that that's not the case because if you're an artist and you believe in yourself and you're great, it doesn't really matter. You can fight through anything with talent. I mean, Michael Caine was in Jaws 4. He got out of the ocean water onto the boat and his clothes were dry, <laughs> and he's won Academy Awards, and he's been amazing. So sometimes you do gigs for the money, and sometimes you do gigs for the respect, and boys don't cry. I'm sure she made $65,000 mm -hmm. and Schedule F. Mm -hmm. And for those of you who don't know what that means, who aren't in the business, basically that's a term that means that the movie can buy an actor out for the length of the picture, Instead of paying them a more expensive daily or weekly rate for a $65,000 payment approximately, which is called Schedule F, they get to have them for as little or as long as they want on the picture. And the rest is history. Mm -hmm. And so you were there. What's amazing is your first gig that you were involved in and reading or whatever, because I'm sure she came in and was reading with people and doing whatever. Mm -hmm. Your first gig, you're working with somebody who's won two Academy Awards. Right. 
So right away, even though you weren't necessarily involved in the process of maybe hiring her technically, you were there through osmosis seeing what it took to give great performances. For sure. Um, my job after Caro, I got promoted to a casting assistant from a reader, $50 a week. And I think I got promoted to about $150 a week. And that was with Mike Fenton. And that really was life-changing for me because Mike at the time did every movie in town. You know, everything from Chinatown to E.T. to all the Raiders of the Lost Ark, all the Back to the Futures. He had to deal with Spielberg. He had to deal with Amblin. So we did all of Spielberg's films. And that was that was a crazy, amazing time for me to go to work for a casting director as big as Mike. And he was with Judy Taylor and Linda Gordon and Jane Feinberg at the time, all those great, great ladies. Um, so that is what I truly remember for sure, many, many stars, many people who had done nothing, who came through the doors and are now huge, huge stars. Mike broke a lot of them. That's for sure. So let's talk about that. You, you see people coming in and what always fascinated me about your side of the business is that as a manager, I've been in both situations where I've been as a manager and I've just had to sit back helplessly and just in my <laughs> office and thinking, what's happening? And I've been a producer and I've been in those rooms. And I think to me, what's really important to share with the audience is what is it? I always say this about television pilot season, and we're going to get to Mike Fenn in a second. But imagine if you met your husband and you had four five-minute dates with him and you had to decide – you had to decide whether you were going to be with him for the next seven years. And so this is what I want you to explain to everybody because I personally don't get it. All you have to do as an actor or an actress during pilot season is to fool people four times. <laughs> Right. So you go into yeah. the read with the casting director, five minutes. Right. They either want you, they don't want you. They'll bring you back for the producers. You go back for the producers, five minutes. Right. You read, you leave, they either like you or they don't like you. If they like you, you go to the, you do a test deal. Right. Which, which means that, for those of you who don't know, in television you have to sign a contract <laughs> For several years, six and a half years, and Saturday Night Live is eight years, where you're locked into your rates, what your deal is, everything, your credits, all those things. And you go in and you audition for a group of people so that, you know, they do that so that if, God forbid, you didn't sign a test deal and you got it, you wouldn't say, hey, I got it, but, you know, I don't want this or I got it, but I want more money. Right. And so you got to look at it this way. So you go to the studio test. That's the third thing. Five minutes, you fool them. You go to the network <laughs> and then five more minutes, you fool them. You have a gig that could be seven years and millions and millions of dollars. Right. So why then, if you only have to fool people for 20 minutes, four or five minute things, why is it so difficult for an actor or an actress to book a fucking job? <laughs> um, I don't know. You know, people always are asking me, what is it about that one actor? What did they do that was any different from everybody else? Because I do all the pre-reads myself, so it starts with me always. 
And I can't really explain it, but I can tell you that my job is a lot easier, I think, than people who do drama, because I think you can fool people a lot more easily in drama. I don't think you can fool people that well in comedy. I think that's fascinating you said that, because I always felt as a manager that if I have a chance to send an artist out for a drama or a comedy, I think they have a much better chance booking the comedy than they do the drama i look at drama as these you know people from juilliard and they're you know they're they've, they've gone to acting school and this is that and whereas you see so many people who don't have a lot of experience in comedy book things they book things but it doesn't necessarily mean they're going to sustain a career in comedy i mean you have to really be funny you have to be a funny person um probably i guess it less so these days because single cameras are becoming so much more prevalent and you don't have to have the beats and the timing. But when I say that I do mostly multicams and, you know, mostly that sort of comedy, pretty broad comedy, I would say, I think it's the hardest thing in the world, Barry. I do. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. My next guest is known as one of the greatest TV casting directors in history, former executive vice president of talent and casting at NBC, best known for his Emmy award-winning work on Seinfeld, but he cut his teeth with the legendary Norman Lear during the days of All in the Family and worked his way up the ladder on such hit shows as The Facts of Life, One Day at a Time, The Wonder Years, Larry Sanders Show, The Nanny, Drew Carey Show. It's incredible the body of work that this guy has. Towards the last decade, he worked on some of the most respected shows in the business, like News Radio, The Office, 30 Rock, Heroes, My Name is Earl, Friday Night Lights, and Southland. I know this guy is going to impart a tremendous amount of wisdom on you. He always has done that for me. Mark Hirschfeld. A lot of people don't understand is that when you're an artist or you're an actor or an actress or a comedian, you're going in for an audition, there is no evidence normally of what happened to your agent or your manager, or your friends, or your family. The only evidence is in that room. And yes, there's a video recording of it, but you don't get to see it. All you know is what you feel, what happened, and you either get the call, 
that you got the gig or you didn't? With television, it's really a um, a medium of personalities, and you can you know it's a combination of the actor who's the right fit for the role plus if they sort of fill up the room, I guess you can say. And there are certain actors that just have that kind of charisma that when you, first of all, when you meet them, you there is a bit of a bullshit meter that goes off and you can tell whether or not they have talent or not. And um, beyond the reading, it's really, it's our job also to really kind of have a sense of their body of work. If I'm meeting a new actor, I want to, you know, see what else they've done, watch watch films that they've been in, see demo reels of some of the television work, film work they've done. But that's true. But this is what's fascinating for our listeners and our viewers is the fact that you have brought people in who had no credits and you have pushed to hire people who have no credits. So sometimes, you know, everybody has to get a gig for the first time right. once and you're somebody who has given people those kind of chances so talk about the body of work thing but talk about also when you're in a situation where you feel like giving somebody a chance because you know in the old days the envelopes come in and the envelopes you open first were the big agencies right. and then all the way down sometimes ed's agency never get op never got opened but, you know, you've given a lot of people chances. When do you decide that you're going to take the risk and say, you know what? This person has nothing, but there's an instinct I have. And I'm going to put them up against a person who's done three series and over 300 episodes of television. Right. Well, I will say I've been one of those. And all casting directors are different. I open every envelope. <laughs> you know, these days it's I look at every submission. I may not go deep, but I really examine every submission that comes in, whether it's one of the big, you know, big agencies, one of the 800 pound gorillas or one of the small agencies or managers. Uh, and what I really rely on is the passion of those agents and managers who, you know, feel very strongly about a client. Um, and if they, if they are passionate about someone, they will, um, communicate that to me and I can sense that and I'll meet that actor as far as um, uh, instinct um, yeah I think if if I sit down with an actor um, I can get a sense of if they've got something unique. you know what I look for an actor is sort of a uniqueness you know there are a lot of kind of good-looking leading men and women but there there are some that just have a specific sort of texture to them and that's what i get excited about even if they you know they've just been in the sunday company at the groundlings or you know they they've done some commercials things like that um i just you know if they have something that sort of sets them apart and makes them unique and special that's that's what i look for it could be their look it could be you know whatever that quality is they have about them but something that is unforgettable in a specific way you were an actor in high school and college tell me what happened because this is fascinating because I, I know you worked with norman lear and i want to talk about that but i want to talk about 
the point where you're in some job or doing something that you really maybe necessarily don't feel is right, what happened and how did you make the transition to casting? Well, I, you know, I would never audition for the lead. I love the kind of the, the comic relief roles. The, you know, the, the, the person who comes in and gets the laugh. I never wanted to act professionally, but I enjoyed it and it was good for my self-confidence. And, um, I love the camaraderie of other actors, but I knew it was nothing that I, I wanted to do professionally. And actually in college, I, um, um, I took television film. I wanted to be a filmmaker and specifically I wanted to be a documentary filmmaker and I wanted to write and I wanted to produce and specifically I wanted to do documentaries at the time. You know, Frederick Wiseman was like one of the great um, documentary filmmakers of his time and um, did these sort of exposés. Um, and that's something I wanted to do. So after I graduated, I worked as a PA in New York on uh, this film called The Warriors. At the time, you know, the Trump building used to be the old Paramount building, mm -hmm. Gulf and Western building. So I used to break into the building and go up and down the stairwell, handing my resume out, trying to get a job. And the Warrior production office opened, and I convinced them to give me a PA job. And the entire thing was shot at night. So um, my hours were I had to report to work at 4 p.m., and then I uh, worked till six in the morning and we, you know, go out to Coney Island where we were shooting. And uh, my job was to, you know, get go for coffee, do whatever. But then they would take their lunch break around 2 a.m. and they would leave me with the equipment while they all went to lunch. <clears throat> and by the way, we were surrounded by real gangs who who were basically would come up to me after all the actors and the producers and director had left, go, oh, you know, these guys are real pussies. These aren't real gay. And I'm like, just trying to, hey, I'm just trying to guard the coffee machine. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it was, you know, it was a real uh, interesting experience. I commuted in from Connecticut. So you're, you're a Jewish me. guy around the gangs. Yeah, you know, Jewish exactly. people don't have gangs. The only Jewish <laughs> gangs there are is we break into accountants' offices and fuck up the books. <laughs> you said you passed your resume all the way up and down the floors. Do you have more respect when somebody knocks on your door of your office and you, your assistant opens the door and there's a person with a resume and a thing in their picture? And do you sometimes, because you did that to get your first job, do you sometimes take those things and actually give them your attention? Yeah. Well, look, I want, you know, I want people who are sort of passionate about what they do. I appreciate actors or anyone else could be someone that wants to be a future casting director or an assistant who sort of gives 110%. And, you know, those actors that sort of literally pound the pavement, knocking on doors, they also need to have the skill set. And there are plenty of those actors out there that are, you know, pounding the payment. They're giving me their picture and resume. They're putting together these elaborate packets with their reel and whatnot. But they just don't have the experience and the tools. You know, you need both. And so, but believe me, if there's someone who, I mean, I, for example, I just hired a casting assistant who's going to work for me in New York. She is interning full-time at a casting office without pay. And then on weekends and nights, she works retail. 
to, to pay the rent. I mean, that's, that's the kind of person I weren't working for me. Someone who is hungry. Because I was hungry. You know, Julie Ashton, when she worked for Steven Spielberg as a young person in the business, they didn't pay hardly any money. It was like nothingness. And I said, how do you make money? And she said that she was a Chippendales waitress. And she would put on her you know, whatever bustier and her panties and whatever the thing oh was. God. And from 10 to 4 in the morning, she would probably make like $500 in cash. But then she'd have to go home, get two hours sleep, and go work for Spielberg. So that's interesting to say that. So you're working on the Warriors. You're as a PA. How do you find out that you're in your mind that you want to do casting? Well, I'm Where does actually, that come from? I moved to L.A. Um, I just decided to test the waters I had a cousin out here who was sleeping on her couch for a few weeks. And literally at the time, you know, it was this is pre-9-11, so it was pretty easy to sneak on to the studio lots. I was sneaking on the Burbank Studios lot, which was Warner Brothers at the time, and Paramount and, and um, you know, Columbia or whatnot. And, you know, knocking on doors, getting my resume, I got my first job. I just want to get my foot in the door. So I, you know, my first job, I got a, uh, I was uh, running mail on a bicycle at the Burbank Studios. I was uh, doing temp work at radio stations. And, you know, I had a, uh, um, I, I, I got my first job as a runner on a live, it was a live talk show called America Live, which was sort of short-lived, one season. But it was live from New York, L.A., and Chicago at the same time which back then was sort of a, a huge task. And it was my job to buy the Telefax machine, which, you know, was sort of a new invention at the time, to fax the script, you know, and coordinate the script between me, you know, my version in Chicago and New York, and then deliver the scripts. And then I did that all night. And then at 6 a.m., we did the show, and I showed up in Burbank where they did the show, and I was there to the, you know, I didn't have to do that, but I wanted to be on set. So that was my, that was my sort of first paycheck. And then, um, I, um, I had had an interview. I had gotten an interview and I can't remember how with, uh, the head of, um, HR for Norman Lear's company at the time it was called Tandem Productions. And, you know, they were, they were doing all in the family. I mean, he was the man, um, you know, the Jeffersons and all in the family and, um, Fernwood Tonight and uh, Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. I mean, his material was also um, changing the sort of the political landscape at the time, too. I mean, it wasn't just entertainment. It was thought-provoking. It was controver incredibly controversial. So um, I had an interview with them, and then like six months went by, you know, crickets, and then I got a call from someone I had met on this America Live project who was working on the Jerry Lewis telethon, and they wanted to hire me for that. So I said yes, and immediately after I said yes, not 15 minutes later, the phone rang. It was a person from Norman Lear's company who said, look, we have a PA position. It's on a pilot. It was less money than I was going to make. It was less amount of time. But I was like, I called up my friend and said, I got to turn down your job. I'm going to do this thing with Norman Lear's company. So I, I took the PA job on a pilot, which was not cast yet. So um, I um, I took the job 
on this this pilot. There, there are two pilots actually. One was called On Ice, which was um, was basically wings that took place up in Alaska about you know this little airfield and these private pilots. It's a comedy. The other one was this show called High Cliff Manor, which was a um, a parody of Dark Shadows. It was a, a comedic um, uh, soap, and uh, but they weren't cast yet. So there was nothing to do in the production office, but there was a lot to do in the casting office. So they actually lent me out to the casting office just to answer phones and everything. And that was, but that was it. I loved it. It was absolute bedlam there. And I absolutely loved that, the energy. And um, I made myself indispensable. I just worked around the clock. I mean, I was, I was working, you know, 20 hours a day, answering the phones, delivering scripts, whatever I needed to do. Um, and after my gig was up there, they sort of couldn't operate without me. So they approved another position and they made me an assistant in the office. And at the time it was myself and um, Robin Stoltz, who's now Robin Stoltz Nassif, who's now an, a children's agent. And um, Eve Branstein, who is the casting director there, and she worked under Jane Murray, who was sort of the guru who, you know, cast all in the family and all those shows. Um, and and um, there was and I stayed there and it took me a few years, but there was just so there was so much work. I mean, at the time, they didn't really do pilots, you know, or let me put it this way. They would do a pilot, but it, all of them would go to series. It wasn't like now where you do 100 pilots and like. Maybe, you know, 30% get picked up for season one and, you know, the attrition rates, another, you know, one third of them don't make it till or two thirds of them will make it to season two. I mean, pretty much everything he did was on the air. So there was a lot of work. It was all multi-camera comedy and um, not. So we had to cast and before you know it, there was so much to do. They were delegating myself and Robin. We were casting stuff. And I was casting four series at once. <laughs> and Robin was. And first we had to cast all the guest stars and the you know the smaller roles. And then after we were done, at the end of the day, then we had to cast the extras. So I'm calling up people on the phone and asking them to come down and be an extra. And then we had to do all the contracts. It was it was we were doing we were 20 hours a week. It was it was, it was a lot. And um I should also say that. Once again, I took a pay cut when I was a gopher. I was making, you know, I think I was making like 210 bucks a week, but mileage on my car I was making like 25 cents a mile. I was putting like 500 miles a week on the car. Um, so when I took the job in casting, they reduced me to like $185 a week, but no, you know, I had no mileage. So I, I really took a, a big pay cut there, but I felt like this was what I really wanted to do. And so I stuck with it and, uh, I was good at it, and eventually uh, I got promoted to casting director. Hey, everybody. I am really, really excited. We have a new sponsor, AquaTrue. This is the first countertop water purifier using multi-stage reverse osmosis technology. I know it sounds complicated, but let's put it this way. This is something that can take your tap water and can turn it into your favorite bottled water 
for pennies. You're going to be enjoying the best water, the safest water. And if you haven't read all the news about Flint, Michigan, in every single state, there's over 100 chemicals found in tap water that are not even regulated by the EPA. Many of them are cancer-causing and have lead in them. So you can go to a special website that we've set up called industrystandardwater.com. It takes you directly to the AquaTrue site. And if you get this product, you're going to get $100 off. Just type in 100 in the special code section. You'll get that money off and you'll start saving. You can put a whole huge bottle of Diet Coke in this machine. And 10 minutes later, it'll come out with the best tasting water you've ever had. I got one of these products. It was unbelievable. IndustryStandardWater.com and you'll be enjoying the best my and most cost-effective water you've ever tasted. She started her entertainment career recasting a role on Three's Company and went on to work at ABC during its heyday from 1983 to 1999, eventually becoming the head of casting for her final 13 years at the network. The list of hit shows that she's been involved with features some of the most successful ones in television history, including Roseanne, Home Improvement, and NYPD Blue. I know this person is going to really, really bring you some great wisdom, Donna Rosenstein. Take me back before college and, and before you ever thought about being in any part of this business where were you? What were you thinking? What was happening? What made you, what inspired you to get in this business? Well, I grew up in um, an area of Brooklyn, New York called Canarsie. Canarsie is an area of Brooklyn that will never become trendy. Um, it very blue collar. Um, the houses were all in a row. In those days, because um, I'm not as... I look younger than I am, but I, in, in those days, growing up in the 60s, we all played out on the streets. Growing up in the 60s, what were you, like two? I, yeah, I was two. Yeah, I was, I was not even two. Um, we had cement, you know, if we were lucky, we had cement backyards. But you, and I haven't thought about this at all before this, sitting on this couch with you, but I have a vision of myself arranging a talent show on my street because what we did in those days you went after you you know you got ready for bed and you went outside in your pajamas and that was a really big deal and I remember the streets of Canarsie East 85th Street organizing a talent show and I think that led in my high school career um, we had something I called sing which I know there's been some films made about. It was part of the, you know, not that sim dissimilar to what Glee is right now, but, you know, we would do these productions. And I became very involved in those. And um, I performed, but I was really behind the camera. You perform? What did you perform? I sang, I danced, and but I conducted, conducted this, the, the group singing. And I wrote the songs and, you know, we would take, you know, write our own words to existing songs. And uh, I realized that behind the scenes, 
was where I really belonged. I got to college and my first couple of years of college were... Well, you went to college at SUNY Binghamton. SUNY Binghamton. Um, Binghamton, New York. It's called Binghamton University now. Um, A really good school. I probably couldn't get into it now, but um, (laughs) back then, back then I did. And it was, it was basically a liberal arts college um, as part of the, um, it was the upper echelon of the uh, state universities. And I was a child of the seventies for the first two years of college, pretty much. I didn't really know what I was studying. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And I was just kind of there. And one day I was home, um, on a break and my father, who unfortunately passed away in 1989, um, who was a great inspiration to me. He was not an educated man. He was a traveling salesman, but he loved me and knew me better than anybody in the world. And he had reconnected with an old army buddy of his from World War II. My father played um, in the World War II band. Um, And he walked in the house and he said to me, I just met with, you know, my friend Teddy Jack. And, you know, his daughter is producing Captain Kangaroo. Wow. Captain Kangaroo. I'm sure, Barry, you can explain to your audience what Captain Kangaroo is. This is going to be difficult to explain because (laughs) the audience, I, I can't believe that I... Remember this because when I was a little, little boy, Captain Kangaroo was the only children's television show on at that time that I remember. And Captain Kangaroo was a guy in some kind of military suit slash dress suit, looked like a leisure suit. He had like a bowl haircut, uh, a mustache that looked like sort of a Groucho Marx, only blonde. And I remember his sidekick, which was called Mr. Green Jeans. And um, it was the only television show the kids watched to learn anything back then. Um, There was no Sesame Street. There was no Nickelodeon. There was none of that. Um, And also, at the same time, um, Jane Pauley had been hired on the Today Show. And that was a really big deal that a young woman was kind of the head running, you know, kind of like the head interviewer, or we call it, or host of and the again, back Today then show. the Today Show was the only morning news show that anybody could get at that time of our lives. And those two things together, my father said to me, You should be working in television. That's what you should do with your life. And I went back to school the next year and realized that SUNY Binghamton didn't have any kind of, very few schools had communications. It wasn't a TV media that was, it wasn't that popular. Syracuse University at that time had, had the incredible program. And, um, but that was going to a private college was not, not in my radar, but, um, I started to learn about something called the Innovational Projects Board at SUNY Binghamton, where you could basically create your own major. And I went and I met with them, and I told them what I wanted to do with my life. 
and they actually let me create my own major. And I had an advisor and my degree is in communication arts. And I took theater classes. I took journalism classes, which, which they did offer. I did an internship at the local affiliate WBNG um, in TV in Binghamton, New York. And um, I had a car then, which is really a big deal, a little Chevy Vega. <laughs> I remember driving to WBNG with it. And my whole life changed. There was, I, I cut my hair short. Well, I went through the Farrah Fawcett and the, and the Dorothy Hamill, for those who remember those haircuts. But I all of a sudden went from being a college girl to a sophisticated businesswoman in a college environment. And I created a television station. There was a radio station and I was a DJ. I had a late night jazz show. Um, but it was WHRW TV, which I think is now called Binghamton TV. I, we'd have to look that up, what, what it's actually called right now. But um, I created two shows. One was called The Flame of Life, which was an improvisational soap opera. And I wrote outlines. And I had my friends from the theater department, who wound up being my roommates, all be in the show. And, oh, backtracking a little bit, I actually was walking through some buildings and found a room full of audiovisual equipment. In other words, all the equipment necessary for a television station was just sitting there and nobody was using it. And a man by the name of Joe Kiley, whose son has actually been in contact with me and, 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 and an actor, was paid to run this equipment, but it never done, done, nobody was doing anything with it. So we brought it, we brought it to life. And um, it was pretty funny, this, this soap opera, because it was <laughs> like a Saturday Night Live sketch of a soap opera. So by the time I graduated, I was like ready to work. There wasn't, I graduated six months early and literally the day after went, took a resume that was as Lynn Nesbitt, one of the great literary agents of our time as well, who was one of the first people I met, said to me, I love these kids who have just graduated college that have two page resumes. <laughs> because there was all, you know, internships and all that stuff that people who are graduating put, you know, and I see those resumes when I interview assistants. Um, but it's true. You know, the thing is, and she was sort of being facetious, but also serious at the same time, because if you are out there listening and you are starting out, even if you're in high school and you're listening and are in college or whatever, you should be doing every single thing you can in every area or lane of what you want to do that gives you the experience to put on that resume. Now, I've always been the kind of person when I interview people, I never look at a resume. I, I never want to know anything about the person until I sit down with them because I want to hear how they articulate things. Mm -hmm. But I'm not always like everybody else. 
And sometimes people are just in departments where they just look at things and you're, you can't even get to the people no matter how hard you try. Um, and so that's what Don is talking about and how, and that's probably why she moved to the next level. So we are in 1977 and little me is takes the train from Canarsie into Manhattan with a handful of these resumes. And in those days, you know, way pre 9-11, pre cell phone, pre everything, you could just walk into buildings. So I would just walk into buildings and drop off my resume at all kinds of places. And after eight hours, I had about six or seven job offers. One, but, but again, you know, this is something I just want to say to to our listeners. It's like a lot of times, like I'll hear from somebody in any kind of vocation they're in. Oh, it's so hard to get a job. I'm having such a hard time getting a job. And I ask them, well, are you getting up at six o'clock in the morning and getting out the door at seven and going from company to company and walking in and dropping things off until eight o'clock at night every day. Well, well, no, I've, uh, I've, you know, I've, I've emailed out some stuff to human resources and I'm just waiting for a response. I'm like, well, you'll be waiting your whole fucking life because it's just not going to happen. You have to treat getting a job like it's a job, like getting a job is a job. It's even a harder job than the actual job. It's a very hard job. And and that's the thing that people don't do, but you did. And I think what also helped me tremendously is during the my summers in college, I did temp work. I worked in incredible places. I worked at Condé Nast. I had a really long-running summer gig at Bergdorf Goodman where I worked for the president of the store. And... Before computers, there was something called dictation. And what secretaries did, their bosses would dict- would tell them what the letter was. They would dictate it to them. They didn't have the app. There's a dictation app that I have on my phone. And there was a shorthand that you used. And then you transcribed it. Well, I didn't know how to do that. But I kind of faked my way. And the president of the store, Ira Neemark, dictated a letter to me. I was like, shit, what am I going to do? I can't admit I don't know how to do it. But I just went back to my cubicle. I remembered everything that he said. I wrote my own letter. And he was thrilled. And they actually had offered me a career in in fashion retailing. Anyway, so that day, I had an offer to work for Lynn Nesbitt at ICM. Michael Fuchs, at HBO. Michael Fuchs was the president of HBO. ICM, for those of you who don't know, is International Creative Management, which actually is not a management company, which is one of the top three agencies in the world for theatrical and literary and uh, all sorts of talent. I ironically had a job offer from production, someone in production at ABC News. And this was all off the street. And what did you choose? I chose ICM. Um, Why? I think I chose it. It was the most money, $175 a week. 
also you could rent an apartment in Manhattan for $300 a month. So it was kind of a little bit relative. Um, and it just seemed, I don't know, it seemed to make sense. And they had a human resources person there who told me I was articulate and eloquent. And I just, uh, why I made the decision, I don't know. Because I was so set on working in television, and yet I took this other job um, at a talent agency. Um, my career with Lynn Nesbitt didn't last very long, but I wound up working with another literary agent um, named Roberta Pryor, who represented Peter Jet. Benchley of Jaws fame. Mm -hmm. And I remember seeing his residual checks come in from the book and the movie. And I never seen anything like that in my life. And in those days, my job was um, listening to dictation on what was called a dictaphone, which is very similar. What's there's an app. I mean, there are many dictation apps, right? I mean, anybody can do this. I listened and I typed up the letters, used a lot of correction fluid, sent out manuscripts. And one day, a an agent from the West Coast came to the office. Um, his name was Elliot Webb. Now, Elliot Webb, for those of you who don't know, is probably, you know, one of the greatest literary agents in the world and has been for probably 25 years, maybe 30 years. And he was just getting started there. And he said, why don't you move to California and come work for me? And I said, okay. <laughs> you mean you gave up your 175 a week? Uh, to make 175 a week on the West Coast. He offered you the same amount of money. I think it was the standard. It was something like that. It was something like that. Did the Peter Benchley checks inspire you that much? How like can you remember what the checks were back then? How big they were? I remember seeing like eight million dollar checks. Eight million. The other thing that was fascinating to me is I remember talking to somebody who was delivering my mail, and he told me he had a law degree, and I said, "You have a law degree." And you're delivering my mail. Um, his name is Andy Howard. I think he's a fairly successful talent manager. Yes, he is. Right now he's a successful talent manager. And um, but that was the very beginning of what, you know, what everybody does now. Like the qualifications to work in the William Morris or ICM or creative artists mailroom are huge. Huge. Um, but they, and you have to do a lot of these agencies, for those of you who don't know, these huge theatrical agencies here in Los Angeles and New York. Like, for instance, at CAA, one of the things that can happen sometimes is you can bypass the mailroom and get a job on somebody's on desk, desk and be there for a year. But guess what? It's an unbelievable thing that has to happen. And I don't know if I believe it's still true of this day. After you work a year, you have to go back to the mailroom wow. to experience what it's like there and, and, and see that part of it before you can go back again. Right. There's formal so, agent trainee programs. Yes. I, I guess I 
sidestep them in, at that time. I remember uh, a friend of mine in New York who was a great showrunner named Bill Persky, who created a show called Kate and Alley. He once told me a story of how when he was doing his first show that he was working on and um, there were these two guys from the William Morris New York mailroom that used to deliver scripts and you could always tell people that we're going to do something in the business. And he said there were two people that delivered scripts that after they delivered the scripts and they left, you actually had fear after they left, you just felt like these guys were going to be something special. It turned out that was Barry Diller and Michael Ovitz. <laughs> so uh, a lot of great people starred in these mailrooms. Absolutely. But, and there were a lot of great people at ICM in New York. Literary shared the floor with theatrical, not film and television, but theater. Um, there was a great woman by the name of Sheila Robinson, who unfortunately passed away. And I remember her coming back and saying, I just came from Shakespeare in the Park and I saw this amazing actress, Meryl Streep. And I remember Richard Gere coming, Milton Goldman represented a lot of movie stars then. And they, you know, they'd come up to the office. It was a very, very relaxed environment. How do you get into the casting world? A friend of mine named Rhonda Young, who had been a very successful casting director at the time, said, can you come and help me with this show? They're recasting, you know, they're, we have to replace Suzanne Summers for the final year of Three's Company. And she was very busy. She was casting all of Stallone's movies. She had a lot on her plate. And I walked in to the casting office and she said, I got to go. Take, will you take care of this? And I just did. And it was just like everything in my life up until that point had trained me for that moment where I'm calling agents. And in those days, Scott Manners. Scott Manners from Stone Manners, which, by the way, for those of you actors and actresses listening, Scott Manners and his partner, Tim Stone, who's now in New York, Two of the greatest agents you could ever find. Right. And they would have a job anywhere in the world as an agent, but they decided to keep and do their own thing, have the best eye for talent. And Donna would be the first ones to tell you that if they called her at any time to look at anybody, even though, even if she felt they were a hundred, even if the role was for a 350 pound African-American woman and they recommended a 57 pound uh, white man, she would say, eh, okay, I'll see him because that's the kind of eye they have and reputation they have. I guess I wanted to say for your audience and people who are looking to work in the profession. I think you have to be ready to do anything. I think you have to have a very varied skill set because here I was, I didn't even know what casting was. I had seen some casting sessions go in and out of the production office I worked on, but it was, it was, it was just really about knowing your stuff. And being able to handle people. And that is sort of the key to everything. 
My next guest was the executive vice president of casting at ABC Entertainment Television Group for over two decades. In his unprecedented tenure, he was known and universally respected for having served under eight different studio presidents in almost 20 years at the network, with a career that's as impressive for both its length and impact on the studio. He started in show business as a theater actor working on Broadway and eventually switched to being a casting director in New York City. He worked on everything from St. Elsewhere to Newhart and was very, very successful when he worked with Disney and ABC with such shows as Unhappily Ever After and Ellen, and he was the driving force behind the first deals of such talented actors as Tim Allen, Drew Carey, Selma Hayek, Margaret Cho, Sarah Silverman, and Dave Chappelle, a guy who has been such a great friend to so many talented people, and I'm honored that I can call him a friend as well, Gene Blythe. I'd love to go way, way back, if you don't mind, because I think it's important for our audience to know how people start in life and how they get to where they're going and and what it is. So take me back to where you grow, grow up and what are you doing before you have the first inclination of being in show business and what's the inspiration for you to want to become an actor? Oh, wow. Well, I was always a singer, even when I was a kid. My mother was a cocktail waitress and I used to sing in the bar. Um, Where was this? This was in Fresno, California. I was born in the Bay Area. It all started in a 5,000 watt radio station <laughs> yeah. in Fresno, California. MTM. Yeah, that's right. That uh, was an that, MTM show, the Mary Tyler Moore show, yeah. Ted Knight. Right. Uh, so anyway, I, uh, I uh, in high school and that sort of thing, so I started, I was an R&B singer. I was actually, be, be, I'm a little embarrassed to even say this, but be, you know, like be, before, um, it was like blue-eyed soul. I had a falsetto. I sang, you know, I sang dances and that kind of thing. So, what was your, what was your, the song that your favorite song to sing back then? Well, I had, I mean, my life's ambition at that time was to be black. I sang everything that was R and B, everything that was soul. I mean, I. Well, I've heard that I, you are from the waist down. That's all I put. <laughs> <laughs> and um, my handle was the mashed potato boy. Why the mashed? Because I did the mashed potatoes on stage, and my agent, my manager, heard it. Somebody in the audience talk about it. So from then on, uh, you know, all the playbills had Gino the mashed potato boy. Do you want to explain to our audience who might not know what the? Well, you can potato... edit all this out, right? Yeah. <laughs> so what is the mashed potato thing? It's mean? a dance. Now, I well, you see, you're too young to remember from the '60s. I'm the too dance. young. You're too young. God bless you. That was a big dance in the '60s. Okay, so yeah. you you were the mashed potato guy. Now, what what was the dance like? Can you explain it to our audience who might be able to visualize it, like Vin Scully? A lot of foot movement. A lot of foot movement. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. Okay. So anyway, I'm so sorry I brought that up, but <laughs> <laughs> um, so my uh, last gig uh, as a singer was at the. Uh, Sacramento Memorial Auditorium, and I got torn apart by a bunch of women in back of the theater. My clothes were ripped off, my hair was ripped off. So I, that night, I joined the army. Why you had I, women it, chasing? It totally blew my mind. I joined the army, and I said, if you can send me tomorrow, 
I will enlist today. So basically, you finally get to a point where you're successful. You go and perform in front of a huge audience. Women are tearing off your clothes, and that helps you make the decision, you know, I'm going to go away for a year with all men. Well, like three years. And by the way, that's when Vietnam was just starting. So I was really an idiot. But, uh, <laughs> but help our audience understand that. Uh, I was just freaked out by it. I'd, I'd been singing for a while, but I'd never really, that night scared me. I was in the rose bushes with people on top of me. It, it really, it scared me. And I've uh, always dreamt to be in those bushes <laughs> with people on top of me. So anyway, I uh, got in the army and I, I wound up on the ship going to Korea. On the ship going to Korea, uh, one of the officers knew who I was, knew I was a singer from the Bay Area. So I was, it was at Christmas time on a cruise on a ship going to, well, we made three stops and then I wound up in Korea. Anyway, he ordered me to put together talent for the officers. So I got a band together and we were entertaining the officers all the way over. I, when I got to Korea, I went to a helicopter unit as a supply clerk. Within three months, that officer had me transferred to Seoul, Korea to conduct the USO program for Korea. Those guys in that helicopter unit went to Vietnam. So while I was in the service, I directed plays for the army. I, I, uh, um, I acted uh, with Helen Hayes. We did. Uh, we toured with uh, uh, Death of a Salesman. And so when I got out of the army, in I was on the East Coast. I was in Maryland, and um, so I'm going to New York. And I uh, went to New York, and two weeks later, I was on Broadway in The Unknown Soldier and His Wife. But how do you get a Broadway gig when you don't even have an agent, a manager, anything? Okay, well, that's another part of the story, uh, is that you my get, friend... You get to New York, and two <laughs> weeks later, you're, you're, you're in a Broadway show with Christopher Walken? Yeah. And what happened was, when I was in the Army, Mary Martin came over in Hello, Dolly. I befriended the whole cast. When I got to New York, I called this guy that I knew from the cast, and he said, well, uh, oh, yeah, let's get together. Will you meet me at my agent's office? And then we'll go to the movies or something. I said, sure. So I go up to his agent's office. It was APA, and Bob Kohler was the agent in New York at the time. APA is still a, a huge, huge agency today. And unbelievably, coming full circle, if you don't mind me saying, about the way relationships work. Who represented Tim Allen when he did that deal? Matt Williams. And they got the theatrical package on home improvement which means that they were the ones who were getting a percentage of the whole license fee of, of the show. So when it did syndicate for $800 million, APA made millions of dollars, which helped fund their company for many, many years right, to come. Man. All right, keep going. I'm sorry. <laughs> so anyway, no, no. So anyway, so we're up there, and my friend had just auditioned for this role. And um, the agent says, uh, are you an actor? I said, well... Yeah, I want to be, but I'm, I'm studying now. I'm going to. I'm starting at the academy, um, and uh, he says you don't want to act. Well, yeah, I guess I did. So my buddy didn't get that job. He sent me down to audition for that job, and I got it. <laughs> How was your friendship with that guy after that? I never talked to him again. But, <laughs> but I don't think it was ever anger or anything. We just lost touch with each other. <laughs> So what was Christopher Walken like? Oh, in those days, he was great. I mean, I haven't seen Chris in a... Um, actually, the last time I actually spoke... No, that's not correct. Uh, the second to the last time I actually spoke to Chris was the weekend he went out on the boat with Natalie Wood and 
and uh, Wagner. Yeah. I was trying to get him to do a play at the taper. You know, and so he called me back to because I told him how badly I wanted him to do this play. And he, he said he read it. You know, he thought about it. he's really doing other things now. And he was off for the weekend with them. Well, the last time I saw him, though, was, you know, when he got the Oscar for Deer Hunter. I was dating an actress who was doing was uh, on location with Heaven's Gate in uh, Montana. And Chris was in that movie. So. This is the night, this is a great example of, you know, be, what stardom does and what it does to your life. So I got to the hotel. I knew he was in the hotel. I sent a message up just to let him know I was in the hotel. He, uh, he uh, came down to see me in the bar. We were together talking, just shooting the shit uh, for about 15 minutes. And then all of a sudden the room got really small. And I mean, not only patrons, but actors, everybody was on Chris's table. You know, what started to be a one-on-one, and we're, because he just got the Oscar, we were talking about that, just, he had to leave. He had to say, you know, um, I'll catch up with you later, you know, I gotta, but the room just crowded. And I imagine that's what happens to all actors when they reach that kind of fame, all of a sudden, this is not what they bargained for, you know? It's, it's no fun, It's funny that you mentioned that. Uh, I I met with this person recently who uh, worked with uh, Celine Dion mm-hmm. uh, for years and years and years. And I said, that must be amazing being in a situation where you're working with Celine Dion. It must be amazing being an artist like that where you actually have that kind of fame. And he said, actually, Barry, it's it's a curse. I said, what are you talking about? He's like, she, she can't leave the hotel. Right. She tries to wear a hat, do whatever. She can't leave. If she leaves, even with bodyguards, it's like the swarming. It's, it's dangerous. Then every show she does is completely sold out and you would think well this is exciting every show is completely sold out and when i said that he said well actually it's not that she's not excited about it but she always has to sing my heart will go on from titanic at the end of every single right show they come to see her sing that and she doesn't want to sing it anymore she's done it but every show, she's she's basically cursed in the sense that she's tied to that, and that's what her audience wants. And then she can't leave. So I imagine with Chris, well, and also just, you know, Chris, when we were acting together, and you know, his wife became a casting director. She cast the Sopranos. George Aaron yeah, Walker. Yeah, and um, we used to be on the subway. He, I did Richard Pryor. And he loved. You did an impression of Richard Pryor. He loved. I did it to Dave one time. Dave stared back at. Me. Do you still do it? <laughs> I'm not going to do it now. Why not? Because it's not as accepted in the. <laughs> Doesn't matter. We can edit it out. <laughs> but in those days, once for Dave, and Dave didn't know quite how. Dave to, Chappelle. Yeah, how to how to respond to me, you know. It's just <laughs> but anyway, so we used to do that on on the side, and he would just go crazy. Of course, he was smoking weed most of the time. But you really can't give us a little piece of it. You know, I first met God in 1929 outside a little hotel in Baltimore. 
I was walking down the street eating a tuna fish sandwich when somebody spoke unto me most holy and resounded. Said, give me some of that sandwich. I said, well, you gotta get your own goddamn tuna fish sandwich. Well, ever since then, I had the power to heal because I didn't get up off the tuna fish sandwich. <laughs> Fantastic. It's so fascinating to actually uh, see a 70-year-old white man do Richard Pryor. It's incredible. That's fantastic. Okay, so you're on Broadway. You do the show. And so... You know, I'm, I think I'm going to have to see all this before you do anything with it. <laughs> no, but go ahead. All right. So how do you get hair, the original hair? I mean, and you, uh, do you have to... Uh, I don't mean to talk about the nudity thing, but this was like the first... No, you didn't have to get naked to get the part. You didn't? No. I mean, I got naked on stage, but you didn't have to get naked to get the part. What happens if you weren't physically, aesthetically this nice? This is the 60s. We're hardly wearing any clothes anyway. All right. I mean, you know, we're... And I weighed 130 pounds then, you know. After uh, the unknown soldier's wife, I went up to Woodstock, New York, and I uh, worked at, at uh, the Woodstock Playhouse. And uh, I did their first uh, winter season, then I stayed for the summer season. And the stage manager for hair, Fred Rhineglass, I don't even know if he's still alive, saw me up there. And he said, when you get back to the city, I want you to, to come uh, and audition for hair. And I said, well, I'm going on a USO tour, which I did. I went myself and five girls toured the Caribbean. Uh, for uh, for mostly Navy and Marine personnel. That's a whole other story. But anyway. <laughs> that was the time where you got the least amount of attention. Right <laughs> so uh, so he's, so when I got back, I called him up and they had me come in and, and and Jerry Windsor, who later became my boss, was the casting director on that show. Relationships, everybody. Yeah, and we worked together at MTM. Um, and uh, so I got. I got cast in that uh, that show um, just by singing for them, and I was understudy for Berger, which is one of the main leads, and I was also part of the tribe. The the my first, I think, was like in the first week, the guy who was playing Berger um, got sick, so I had to go in. And my first night as Berger was uh, Diane Keaton's last night as Sheila. Wow. <laughs> I was the first Broadway replacement, if I should make that clear. It was like the, the show opened in 68. Were there other cast members of the original hair that became household name actors? Well, we, you know, um, Melba Moore was yeah. in hair. Um, when I was in hair, the, the drummer for Love and Spoonful okay. became Claude, so we played op I played opposite him. Barry McGuire. Great. Thank you. But by the way, you know, he was part, he's in the song of the Mamas and the Papas, so Barry's, uh, you know, they were all hanging out together. Okay, so we're through with hair? <laughs> <laughs> we're through with hair, so take me how you became casting? an actor, oh. and then you went to become a okay. casting director. Because okay. you're successful, you're experiencing success, you're, you know, Broadway is the highest level that an actor can be on without being in movies, and also, to be honest with you, even when you're in movies, you feel like you haven't completed your career unless you go to Broadway. So, 
You're well, at the in those level. days, in those days, uh, that's where the acting pool was coming from in terms of L.A. It was so, from New York. So you, okay. everybody started in New York. So this is what's interesting, a pattern that's developing with you. I hope you don't mind me saying this. You do singing, you get from your you know, whatever it is, you're the bar where your, you know, mom is a cocktail waitress and you get to a theater where it's sold out and women are attacking you afterwards. And then you're at the highest point there of that singing career. You quit, you go into the army and then you get to the highest level as a actor where you're on Broadway, you, you book your first two things in a row and then you say, you know what, this acting thing, fuck it. Well, let's conti <laughs> let's continue with that, because after Hair, I loved Woodstock so much. We moved back up. This is my first wife and I moved back up to Woodstock, New York, and I ran a hard. I, at first, I had an antique store. Then I ran a hardware store, which is the main hardware store in Woodstock. You know, Woodstock the festival, right? Uh, for like three or four years. Built a house, built a cabin on two acres of land, which is in a book called Woodstock Handmade Homes. And then I decided this is not enough action for me. I need to go back to the city. So go back to New York. I'm in a couple of plays off Broadway. Uh, I get hired myself and two black guys to back up Alexis Smith, the actress who was doing a nightclub uh, routine. And we travel with her. We do Atlantic City, we do Toronto. And so during that time, I also sort of became the company manager while I was also singing in the background. So then I, when I got back, I falsified a resume to three different people. You lied. I lied. That's falsify. I lied. <laughs> One was um, Woodstock Playhouse, which I'd worked for, but as a production manager, Cahoes Music Hall, where I became the production of the, the company um, company manager, and then Path Playhouse, which I got the job as production manager, and those were all the same year. And um, it was Path uh, that actually gave me my my training and my and my, cre and my credibility for casting. Now, Path was in Path, Long Island. P-A-F. P-A-F. Huntington right? Station, uh, Long Island. Got it. P-A-F stood for? Performing Arts Foundation. Got it. Yeah. And so... Well, there, as I said, I was casting all the things, and Jeff Daniels worked in one of our things, and uh, and uh, he was associated with Circle Rep, which was Marshall Mason, who was the artistic director there. So I come out to visit a friend in L.A., and Marshall Mason is trying to talk me into becoming the general manager of Circle Rep in New York. And so I take a meeting with him and Lansford Wilson, the playwright, because they were doing 5th of July at the taper. And I said, you know what? I don't want to do that. I want to be a casting director, and I want you to get me a job. I want you to get me an interview here at the Mark Taper Forum. So uh, he was disappointed, but he talked to Bill Wingate, who was the general manager at the time. It, they called me. It, when I got back to New York, Bill Wingate was in town. He said, I hear you want to work at the Taper. Can we have lunch? We had lunch. He says, you're a great guy, but we have absolutely no positions. I'm living in Brooklyn. Two weeks later, Gordon Hunt, the father of Helen Hunt, who was running the casting office. Who was one of the greatest acting coaches. Cast her on St. Elsewhere. She was like 14 years old. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, called me up and said, I understand you want to work in the casting office. He says, I'm in New York. So I talked to him. Two weeks later, I was in my MG headed for New York. That was February of 1980. That's why I always tell people that be open to everything because you never know when your career is going to come together. My career 
didn't come together till I was 35. I never knew I was going to be doing this. Then all of a sudden, I came to LA to make $60,000 a year. That was, that was my ambition. I was doing that within a year, and after that, I never had to make another decision again. They were all being make it, made for me. I just kept propelling, you know, it's like fate. My next guest is acknowledged as the greatest living acting teacher in the world. He's coached Academy Award winners Helen Hunt in As Good As It Gets and Hilary Swank and Boys Don't Cry and Million Dollar Baby. Additionally, he's worked with a plethora of Oscar and Golden Globe nominated actors, including the late Michael Clark Duncan in The Green Mile, Jim Carrey in The Majestic, Tommy McGuire in Seabiscuit, and Leonardo DiCaprio in The Aviator, The Departed, Blood Diamond, Inception, and J. Edgar. This guy is as powerful as it gets. Larry Moss. So what inspired you to get in this crazy business? Uh, terror and narcissism. <laughs> um, well, you know, it's interesting. Um, when I was born in 1943, um, uh, World War II was still happening. So I think um, being Jewish at that time, and uh, our name was Moskowitz, my father used to change it when we would go to restaurants. He'd say, four for Moss, and I'd say, Daddy, why do you change our name? And he'd say, oh, they never pronounce it properly, but something in my gut said, there's something else going on. And then I went to school, and then I went, it's not good to be called Moskowitz. So the point in bringing that up in terms of any kind of um, you know, racism or any kind of ism where people are put <clears throat> to the side of life and persecuted for something they are. Um, it makes you, um, I think, have a feeling of um, being the outsider and wanting to get inside. And um, I think that r being raised at the beginning of television and seeing the beauty and the great talent that happened when television began, and then the great movies uh, in the f uh, late 40s, 50s, um, uh, the golden age of Hollywood. Uh, and my parents used to go to Broadway shows and bring back the cast albums. So I was introduced to, you know, the great Broadway musicals, Guys and Dolls and, you know, Carousel in Oklahoma and um, would listen to those people. And my parents, who were adrenaline junkies, uh, would take my brother and me to Vegas. So I was like 10 years old and I saw the great Nat King Cole live. I saw Sammy Davis Jr. live. I saw Frank Sinatra live. I saw Lena Horne live. I saw greatness very early. And... Uh, so I immediately attached to the entertainment business as a way to find joy, to find uh, um, love, uh, which was wrong, but that's what I thought. And um, I went into show business for all the wrong reasons, uh, in order to be recognized, seen, loved, adored, special, and tell everybody to go fuck off. And uh, after 30 years of therapy, uh, uh, based on a lot of incidences in my childhood uh, to that I needed to heal, um, I began to understand the beauty of, uh, of uh, the art of acting and writing and uh, composing and dance. And um, um, I don't know if that even gives you a sense of that I always knew that I, because there were two things. One was the wound and one was the joy of watching greatness. So the wound was the perceived shame of going into a public place and having your dad make an excuse for changing the name. Yeah. And you couldn't even be yourself or be your name. It starts there. And all the immigrants who came over, 
you know. Uh, now, here's an interesting question. So you know that as a fact that your dad changed your name, but you get old enough to be in a position where you can do anything you want, and you're not Larry Moskowitz. No. Why not? I didn't like my family. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want their name. So I changed it. But it wasn't because I didn't want anybody to know I was Jewish. I love being Jewish. I didn't like them. I mean, I loved them, but I didn't <laughs> like them. Well, they were silly people, you know. But they, <laughs> but they had a lot of pain and, you know, blah, blah, blah. But, uh, you know, they were, they were perfectly fine. And I always say, and I think everybody who's ever had dysfunctional families should go, well, at least they didn't kill me. You, you know what I mean? That It's like they, they, they did their wounding, like they were wounded. And you walk out of your house somewhat crippled, and you limp into hopefully a good life. Well, there's more to it than that, and I, I've heard there is? I, I've heard a lot of your stories, and you use a lot of stories uh, when you're teaching. And I audited a class of yours once just to see what you did, and you told me a story. You were trying to get. Um, for those of you don't who haven't been coached by Larry, or even seen anything on Larry. Um, Basically, what happens is um, he has a, a group of people, normally between 30 and 40 people, who he pairs up into uh, scenes. He tries normally a lot of times to do men and women together, but oftentimes there's you know men and men and women and women doing scenes. And they get their scenes about two weeks beforehand, and then they work on them, and he breaks them up into, yes, four days, so... Uh, half the class will go the first day, half the second day, and then the the third day, half again, half, and then he'll comment on them. And when you go on stage in front of Larry, you could start a scene in front of Larry, and literally you could have worked on it for like 40 hours with your partner. And you could deliver the first line, and Larry would be like, okay, stop, stop. What the fuck are you doing? What are you doing there? I, I don't understand what you're doing. You, 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 there's no emotion. There's nothing. Reach deep inside. And there was this one situation where there was a woman and a man doing a scene. The man was a journeyman actor who was a character actor who had done a lot of different things. But, you know, when you're a character actor, the tough part is, even though you're in a lot of stuff, you don't make a lot of money. You don't break through as much as you should. And you want to break through. You know you're talented, but you can't. And the girl was incredibly talented, um, a person that was brilliant, uh, and but she hadn't broken through yet as well as she wanted to. And he made them do this line or this passage like over and over again. And he got them like a fish. And I what, bet you just can't wait to study with me. And I want to get this right. He said to them, look, you guys are both damaged. Stuff has happened to you early in your lives. I don't know what it is, but it's happened. And you have a hole inside of you. And that hole is being fulfilled by this acting work. But then when the acting work ends, the hole is still there. And you're expecting the acting to fill the hole. But the acting isn't going to fill the hole. You have to figure that out through therapy or whatever you do. You have to realize that the acting is the art form or whatever. First of all, let me clarify, uh, as a teacher, uh, I am fully aware of the vulnerability of the actors who study with me and have for the 43 years that I've been lucky enough to be a teacher. And um, what I want to give the uh, actors is a sense of being a conduit for great writers. We live in a time where narcissism is at its epic worst. 
meaning it's all about me and I want to be famous and I'm going to be, uh, you know, uh, um, the, um, the number one singer, uh, you know, the iconic person. And um, show business is about uh, largely, sadly, at its worst money. And uh, when you think that your career will make up for a difficult, lonely, or abusive childhood, um, it will always boomerang. Uh, we think, well, if I am adored by the public, and if I'm attractive, and if I'm talented, then then life will make sense. And then we look at you know Whitney Houston and Heath Ledger and Michael Jackson and Marilyn Monroe and. You know, you go, gee, I guess it doesn't make you happy, does it? No, it makes you happy to be creative. It makes you happy to be good at something. It does not erase the background that you come from if it's a difficult background. Um, the uh, quote from Aeschylus uh, and what the Buddhists say about um, living with death on your shoulder, um, understanding the value of a moment, uh, meaning I'm here in this interview and I can feel my hand holding the microphone and I'm touching my eye and I'm kind of private in public and it's not going to be um, when I teach on Monday or I coach a movie on Tuesday. I'm in this moment right now and if I don't experience this moment right now then what was my life about? In other words, show business goes, when you win the Oscar, when everyone knows your name, then you have value. No, that's wrong. You have value because you're, if you are listening to this interview and you're having a, a drink of some kind and eating a potato chip, that's your life. And if you're tasting it and drinking it and enjoying it, then you're living. So I guess what I'm saying in a roundabout way is um, I value my students, and I know that most of them come to me, as the great Stella Adler, who was one of my teachers, said, actors come to acting, most of them, not all of them, but most of them broken. And they live in the fantasy that one day I will be the person who gets the center of attention. And I very much, as I grow old, want to understand that basically what I'm about is great writing. And when you walk into an acting class and you work on... Tennessee Williams, or you work on Arthur Miller, or you work on Eugene O'Neill, or you work on Shakespeare, or Chekhov, or Moliere, or Strindberg, um, and you suddenly go, my God, my voice and my body and my emotions are a conduit for these great writers and these great ideas, then you say, oh, acting is about something much bigger than me. It's about what it costs to be alive. And that's what I teach. Now, on the other hand, it's about breaking a script down, understanding a writer. We are living in the area of everything is fast, you know, television and, you know, cell phones and all that. Um, I come from New York. I go to the theater four times a week most of the time. Um, I want to get better. I want to get better at what I do. And I don't look at whatever success I have as my value. I know I can learn more. And I guess um, my, my past, meaning the amount of pain that my brother and I suffered at the hands of our parents who suffered at the hands of their parents. I don't blame my parents. They did the absolute best they could. We grew up in a terrifying time, and uh, everybody got hurt. It's not about being a victim. It's about not being a victim. And when you get good at something, 
when you work hard, when you give yourself time. I say to my actors, I said, you got eight hours a day of work to do every day. You have to work on your voice. You have to work on reading plays. You have to work on opening up your emotions. You have to work on uh, uh, being silly and uh, um, angry and sexy and being able to open up everything in order to be an instrument that can bring the great writing to life. That's what I teach. I don't give a goddamn about Hollywood or, or fame or any of that. I did when I was young, and that is what you feel when you're young. When you get some wisdom, you go, A, I'm lucky to be alive, and B, why don't I give the world something by being excellent at it and work hard, focused, and with passion? That's what I teach. That's what I believe in. I fear that because of American Idol and because of... Um, the violence in our world right now. We think that celebrity will give us a reason for living and it actually is the most dangerous thing if you don't have a craft that you're good at. Um, I love being an American, but I don't like the economic structure of it, meaning that you're valuable if you have money. You're valuable if you're famous. No, you're valuable because you're here. And if you have a, if you're an excellent painter or an excellent scientist or an excellent architect or an excellent ball player, you're excellent at something and you get better at it all the time, all the time. You know, I don't think people are entitled to anything except a good childhood. And that doesn't happen too often. You earn your life. You earn it through a lot of hard work and diligence to become better at something. And I'll tell you something, who's ever out there who's young and scared and thinking like, how will I make it? It isn't about making it, it's about becoming yourself. It's about having an identity. It is not about fame and fortune. It's nonsense, it's empty, it has no meaning. What has meaning is being good at something, finding contact with other people and learning how to love people. And I know that's true because I've lived 70 years and I've tried it the, the, the narcissistic way. It doesn't work. So let's talk about when you decided, because that's just an amazing uh, thing you just said about life, and uh, very rarely do we get to hear those kind of things from anybody in our life. So, I mean, the value of your words is incredible, but I think it's also important to note, when, when did you make the realization that the narcissism and the star fucking, or whatever you want to call it, was not the right path. What happened in your life to make that revelation shine a light in your face and say, okay, I've done it this way, now I've got to stop and do it this way? I wanted to be on Broadway a lot, and I got on Broadway quite a lot, and um, had some success and worked with uh, Neil Simon and Michael Bennett and... Uh, Oh my God, Jerome Robbins and um, uh, Leonard Bernstein and um, uh, Bert Shevelov and, uh, you know, Gene Sachs and the great Broadway people, the golden age of Broadway. And um, uh, I really, really believed that uh, I would feel better about myself if I was starring in a Broadway show. I loved the acting. I loved the singing. I loved the dancing. I loved it. But there was something wrong inside of me because I thought that my success would fix me. And because I had a depression, which did run in my family, and I had begun to teach, I said, I'm going to take a year off, and I'm going to just teach and go to therapy every day. Uh, I found a great psychoanalyst, and I went five days a week 
uh, for three and a half years. It's very expensive. How did you afford that? I sometimes worked two and three jobs. Um, and uh, I started to make money as a teacher, and I did whatever I had to do in order to save my life. And when I realized that I loved performing, but that what I was really meant to do was teach, I suddenly began to heal. Because this idea that an audience clapping or, or given an award or starring or having the last bow doesn't make up for the fact that I felt empty inside. And I wasn't supposed to be an actor. What I was supposed to do is be a teacher. And the acting helped me to understand the, teach, uh, the teaching of actors because I was one for so long. And don't get me wrong, again, I, uh, working with Jerome Robbins, working with Michael Bennett, working with Neil Simon, uh, all of the greats of the theater uh, was an honor. Uh, but I saw the lie. If you read Bob Fosse's biography, which you should, and you won't believe what you read, you won't believe that book. Um, Bob Fosse, in one year, won the Tony Award, the Oscar, and the Emmy. In one year. And he hit the same thing I hit, which is that, shouldn't I feel loved and adored and happy? He was more depressed because it didn't fill him up. You know, it doesn't fill up Lindsay Lohan. You know, it doesn't fill up A, B, C, D, E. Show business is a lie. It's a complete lie. Having a self is not a lie. And then if you're good at something and you have a career, you might be... Uh, fortunate to have a life and a career like Meryl Streep does, like Daniel Day-Lewis does, um, uh, we are killing ourselves with narcissism and celebrity. And I guess because I have a form to speak, I understand that what I want to say to the young people is, I learned that I needed a self and I needed to be excellent at my craft. And that gave me all the success I wanted. I'll give you an example. I had a friend of mine, nice guy. And he kept saying that I didn't understand show business because I was in the arts and show business was about networking and who you know and um, that I would never be in the business because I was a, a teacher, blah, 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 blah. So I was coaching people and the year came about where I coached uh, the wonderful Hilary Swank in Boys Don't Cry and Michael Clark Duncan in The Green Mile and they both got Oscar nominations and then... I was on NPR, and then somebody offered me a book deal, and then, you know, I got very well known and thanked on the Oscars and all that, and that was lovely. And uh, my friend said to me uh, when he said he didn't think you had to work so hard that you had to do it by knowing people and by looking good, and he was mad at me, and he said, well, you got everything, didn't you? I said, no, I just ate my pie. Yours is rotting in front of you. <laughs> you didn't do the work. I did the work. You thought that, that I was a fool for working so hard. You thought you could get away with the fantasy of knowing people or looking good. No, there's one royalty in our business, and that's being absolutely excellent at what you do. For those of you who've listened to this podcast, I'm going to plug something that you're probably annoyed about, but I don't care. I'm going to plug the movie I Killed JFK, which we got theatrical distribution for one night only, a special event, May 31st, in theaters all across the country. You can go to ikilljfk.com to get tickets. It centers around the story of the only living person who's ever admitted to killing JFK, along with 20 different interviews with eyewitnesses, historians, and experts corroborating his story. 
and afterwards a panel discussion with five of the last remaining living experts on the JFK assassination. It's an amazing night. Please check it out. May 31st, one night only, Wednesday. Get your tickets at ikilledjfk.com. What advice do you have for a young actor or actress or somebody trying to come to this town and make an impact and make their mark or any actor or actress that might be here for a while but for some reason hasn't found their way? And similarly, what kind of advice do you have for a young executive who wants to be in casting and how do they figure out a way to navigate and get to the point of status on the top of the hill like you are. I think for the actors, you have to, and really this goes with, for the, for everybody, you have to remember it's a business and you have to go about it in a business, show business. So I think people come out here and they think they're going to wait tables and get discovered by Julie Ashton who's eating dinner there that night. That's not the way it's going to happen. You need to do the work. You need to study. You need to take classes. You need to learn how to audition because that's a whole other thing. People don't even know what a slate is. You know, you can't go in in front of a casting director and have them say slate and not know what you're doing. You also have to take cold reading classes because you have to be able to change on a dime. If you come in and audition for me for the role of Olivia and I think you're much better for the role of Mary and I say, can I give you sides for a different role and see if it feels more right? You have to be able to do that. To audition quickly and make choices, even if they're the wrong choices, you have to make some kind of a choice so I can see if I feel like you're right. If I feel like there's potential, I'll bring you back at a later time to give you a little bit more time. But you have to be smart in the way you go about it. You have to study. You have to network with other actors. You have to try to do some kind of a showcase where casting directors can come and see your work. Um, you have to be relentless. You have to bang down doors. We've had many actors come to our office with their headshots to drop off before. And my associate will say to them, hey, you know, we have a lot of volume. We're doing a lot of episodic stuff. So we need a lot of actors on a weekly basis. My assistant will say, hey, uh, what are you doing tomorrow afternoon at four? You look like you might be right for this. And they've ended up booking the roles, even if they don't have an agent. So you have to go door to door. You have to try to beat down doors and beat the bushes as much as you possibly can. And I think this, the same goes for, for casting associates. I think you have to be willing to start off being a reader and interning and not being paid any money at a casting office to get your foot in the door and work your way on up. You have to, you have to not put money as the most important thing. I mean, we all have to survive obviously, but if you have to work three other jobs in order to learn from a casting office and to get your foot in the door and get a credit on your resume so somebody might hire you for an assistant and then an associate and then someday opening. I mean, you literally have to start from the ground up and work your way on up. And you have to most importantly believe in yourself because if you don't, there's no reason why you should even be in this town. It's a tough town. And if you're not your own best friend and if you don't support yourself 1,000% and really believe that miracles literally happen every day in this town because they do, then you shouldn't be here. I think you need to learn the talent pool. That's the most important thing. You need to you need to love actors, you need to respect them, and you need to um, take risks and be supportive of them. And um, and be out there. There are a lot of casting directors that sort of insulate themselves. 
from actors and I'm, I'm not one of those. I mean, I don't like go out and party and socialize with actors, but I see everything. Or if I don't, I have, you know, people in my office that see everything. There's just so much right now. It's just impossible to see everything. So I rely on a lot of other people to um, say, hey, I saw so-and-so in this small play, or I saw this person on YouTube, or I saw this, you know, I'm, I'm going to VidCon down at, at Anaheim to see the YouTube stars. Because a lot of people are, you know, a lot of great writers and a lot of great talent are sort of coming out of that world. Um, I think that's sort of the next frontier and it's sort of, that's blown the doors off of, you know, not that we're the gatekeepers, but it's sort of, you know, it, they've done an end run. They're producing their own material. And so, um, they're doing end run around the casting directors and the agents and the managers. They're creating their own material and creating their own opportunities for 50 bucks and uh, aggregating their own audiences, their own fan bases. And so as a casting director, I need to be aware of, you know, the people that are coming out of that world, continuing to come out of the stand-up comedy world, theater, um, uh, the reality world, sports, bloggers. It's all, you know, it's a whole new frontier. Um, and I would say... You just have to be, you know, as an actor, you have to be passionate about your work and you have to go in the room convinced that you, you know, we have a problem. Casting directors, um, every actor that comes to the room, we want to solve the problem that we have. And that is we don't have the, we don't have the right actor for the role. So every time, you know, I don't care if there are 50 actors sitting out in the waiting room with you, um, you know, actors can sit out and go, all right, number 25 coming in. You know, the, the, the casting director and the producer is not sitting there, you know, hunched over going, all right, what do you got for me next? You know, let's get through this. There's a lot of ex positive expectations as that door opens and that actor walks in the room. We want you to be the solution to our problem. And you will either step up and fulfill that or not very, very quickly. You know, in the first page, we'll know pretty much if you're close to hitting the target. But we're, you know, even if you're not, that next actor comes in, we, you know, we're all anxiously want you to be the solution. Because casting is a very long, arduous process and no one wants to do it. So you do have that leg up as an actor when you walked into that audition room. I think... In any profession, I believe in being the best person you can be and being the best at anything that you can be and being prepared and to work in television for the most part, it's hard if you're not in New York or L.A., it's just where the work is. There is a lot of work in Vancouver. There's a lot of work in New Orleans. There's a lot of work in, in, in different places. I think the actors, I think being off book is an underemphasized. Yeah, we say, oh, don't worry. Look at the page. Look at the page. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. But I think if you have, if you've got the words, 
you're halfway there because you have the confidence to really perform. And I think what they don't teach in a lot of drama schools and something I've thought about teaching, but I'm not sure if I want to, is the art of the procedural. Working on a procedural, which many television shows are. And when you come in for any kind of supporting role, it's not about you. It's about moving the story along. It's about doing your job as part of a bigger whole and doing your job quickly and professionally. And, you know, the Internet gives you the ability to understand what technical jargon might be, pronunciation of words. Um, You know, people come in and pronounce words incorrectly. Yeah, people make mistakes, but for the most part, that's really easy to do before you come in. So being prepared is the most thing, the most important thing I can tell you. And, you know, act anywhere you can, any kind of community theater, any kind of open call that you can go to, any kind of local casting. I think staying busy in your craft is what keeps you fresh and keeps you ready for the moment that might be your big break. In terms of the casting profession, um, I think actually, I believe Mark Hirschfeld, who um, was on one of your podcasts, I believe he's involved. Is it Syracuse University that now has a casting program? I think so, yes. Um. I think it's a profession. There's go see the documentary called Casting By. Um, it talks about the beginnings of an kind of an uns- unsung profession that is now becoming much more known and much more visible and much more important. Most casting directors are in New York, L.A., Toronto, Vancouver. There are some fine casting directors in the South. Um, There are some in Chicago. Um, Working in a casting office, getting an internship, watching a lot of television and films, knowing as many actors as you can. And... The more familiar you are with what you're auditioning for and what you're could be casting for, it's just everything. If I have somebody that works in my office that is really in the know about what's current, what's happening, it's a huge, huge benefit and really puts them a cut Above, When I interview for an assistant, you know, one of the questions I'll ask is, what TV do you watch? What films do you watch? And it's just important to have that shorthand. What comedy clubs do you go to? And it's the same for actors and for casting directors being prepared. Well, it's going to be really simple. And that's what I used to tell actors also, that 
and it, it's, it's advice you've heard before, but you don't think about. And that is, if you want to be an actor or an executive, you will be. But what that means is you're willing to put in all the time, put all of the work, wait for as long as you need to, that there's nothing else you can do with your life except to do this one thing. So all you ever are doing during the day is focusing on that one thing. And if you really want it, there's no way you won't get it. All right, as I like to joke, because if you put yourself in the street every day, sooner or later you'll get hit by a truck. <laughs> so, I bet mean, it is all about desire. It's, it's. I mean, talent is a major part, but we see not so talented people make it, and they deserve to make it because they really have the work ethic and the desire to make it. Study the great films. If you're actors or directors or writers, study the great films and read the great plays. We're living in a time where people aren't reading too much. And for the young people and the middle-aged people, uh, get it, turn the goddamn television off and read. And you won't like it. You'll get bored. You'll get scared. You'll get anxiety-ridden because you'll go, I, I got to have the tube, which is a drug. You got to get away from technology and open a book. Read the great writers. Get out and go to concerts. Get out and go to plays. Go to New York, as I said, see Mark Rylance and Richard III and and uh, Twelfth Night, and uh, I said, Waiting for Gatto in No Man's Land in New York, uh, Cherry Jones in The Glass Menagerie with Zachary Quinto, gorgeous production by John Tiffany, the director. Um, go and see things. Read things. Find an artist you like, whether you're a musician or an actor or a director, find an artist that's doing what you want to do that you like, and analyze why you like them. Why do I like Marty Scorsese's movies? What is it about the way he shoots or the way he uh, moves the camera or the stories or Kazan, you know, um, uh, or you take a, uh, a, a look at uh, any, uh, any director that's, that, that's now, uh, Quentin Tarantino, um, uh, why do you like the, so them? Um, uh, the... Um, uh, the great uh, comedy director James Brooks, you, you see as good as it gets, or um, uh, his uh, uh, brilliant uh, broadcast news uh, or terms of endearment. Um, I know him a bit, and he's a wonderful man and a great director. Uh, there's never been a funnier moment in a movie uh, than Jack Nicholson and Shirley MacLaine in terms of endearment. Their relationship is classic clown comedy with truth. Um, Find out what you like and then look at the best of that and study it. And then get out and direct and have experience. Get scared and do it anyway. What is the meaning of courage? Doing it when you're scared and doing it anyway. Don't be lazy. Do it when you don't want to do it. The difference in my life is I did it when I didn't want to do it. I did it anyway. And I remember I had an, a teacher when I was a young teenager and I was fucked up. And he said, Larry, work very hard. And he gave me the greatest advice. He told me, don't be lazy. And that made all the difference. Did I answer it? Yes, you did. You answered <laughs> the questions of the world today. And let me tell you something. Don't. I'm going to remember this day for the rest of my life. Oh, don't say it. Or hopefully until I become 70. You're, uh, you're young. Larry Moss, <laughs> you are an extraordinary man and yeah, I am blah, 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 blah. honored to know you and to know that uh, you would come here and do this for 
Uh, well, it was agony, Bear. Oh. Our audience. <laughs> it was just sheer agony. I'm going to have to go to therapy for another two years to get through this. And, 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 and do some kind of antidepressants because I've revealed uh, much too much. I was hoping you could recommend your therapist to me. Anyway, so... Um, He's dead. Oh. That's going to crush you. That's going to crush you. But then he again. was the first Cuban analyst in America, Gabriel de la Vega. He saved my life. Beautiful man, about four feet tall, wore plastic shoes. Saw him five days a week for three and a half what years. What do you do when your therapist dies? How do you get to the next therapist? Cry a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and you miss them every day of your life, and you thank, thank them for being the father you never had. Wow. No, but thank you, Barry. Thank you for letting me sound off. And... Uh, I just wish everybody well, and I wish that they learn to love themselves and become good at something and be kind to others. I hope you enjoyed this special episode of the Best of Industry Standard Casting Directors as much as I did. hope you got something out of it. Thank you so much for everything. I hope you have a great, great week, and looking forward to the 200th episode with Bill Burr coming up next week. Ladies and gentlemen, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. Okay, I'm going to scroll through the list of people who sent me a message, a review on the iTunes comment review section. And one of these people will be a lucky winner. And they'll get to attend a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions, or else if they're out of town, out of state, or out of the country, we'll Skype them in or FaceTime them or anything like that so they can be there. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. All right, landing on 10 stars. Wow, that's fantastic. It shows five stars, but he's got 10 stars as the title. I am very, very happy about that. I've, I've doubled my stars. Uh, it's by Marvel NYLA, February 6, 2017. It reads, <laughs> love, 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 just love. Uh, I think this person uh, feels love. So congratulations. You just won. Uh, I, uh, thank you so much, Marvel, New York, L.A. Take care. Hey, everybody, don't forget I Killed JFK, the movie special event, one night only Wednesday, May 31st, in theaters all across the country about the only living person who's ever admitted to killing JFK. It's an amazing story. Check it out. You can get tickets at ikilledjfk.com, May 31st, one night only. Special thanks to our new sponsor, AquaTrue, with the first countertop water purifier using multi-stage reverse osmosis technology. Check it out. Go to industrystandardwater.com. Takes you directly to their website. Type in the code 100. Save yourself $100. I have one of these. It's amazing. Start turning your tap water into the best tasting water. Industrystandardwater.com. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get all the money. Drop them 
that fancy car. All the people love you. Cause you're going for life is for the dreamers. They have all to gain. It's never quite over. So it all feels the same. Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.